Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, good evening, and welcome. My name is Rosie Levine, and I'm a senior program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am delighted to welcome you all to this program. July 1 will mark the 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from Great Britain to China. Today's program will examine the history and impact of this momentous event. We will look at the relationship between Hong Kong, mainland, China, and the world, and how these dynamics have evolved over the past 25 years. We are joined here today by three terrific panelists who will help us analyze, interpret, and contextualize the Hong Kong handover through their areas of focus. I will briefly introduce our three panelists their full bios may be found on our event page for this program, so I will not read their full bios here, but they are illustrious. Chris Chung is an award-winning journalist from Hong Kong who covers politics and diplomacy, currently based in London as a contributor to the Voice of America. Pierre Landry is professor of government and public administration at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And Gina Ann Tam is an associate professor of Chinese history and co-chair of women and gender studies at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. All three panelists have participated in NCUSCR programs, so we're delighted to have them here today. Pierre and Gina are fellows in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, and Chris is an alumnus of the Professional Fellows Program. Um, we are excited to have them here for what is bound to be a fascinating discussion, and we will reserve the latter part of the program for audience questions. So if you do have a question, um, you can feel free to click the Q&A icon located at the bottom of your screen um, and when submitting your question, if you feel comfortable, please include your name and affiliation, and please specify who you are directing your question to, if it has a, a subject. Um, so with that housekeeping out of the way, I'm delighted to turn it over to our discussion. Um, today, we'll keep the conversation pretty informal, and I'll just kick off with Pierre to, to start us off with an opening question. Um, Pierre, your focus is on politics, and so as a, a scholar of governance and politics, can you help um, explain for the audience uh, what the Hong Kong handover meant for governance in Hong Kong? Um, rule of Hong Kong was handed over from the British to the PRC, but what did this mean in governance terms and how has this changed in recent years? Over to you. Right. Thank you, Rosie, for a very kind introduction. And I want to apologize to the audience for my strange voice and, and my perhaps coughs uh, throughout this uh, brief uh, discussion. So governance is a fairly new term in political science. Uh, it's been about, you know, the block for about 20 to 30 years. And it really is a multidimensional uh, process uh, by which people um, who look at uh, a variety of indicators to kind of try to understand basically how well or how poorly uh, a locality is governed. Uh, it involves public institutions as we know them, you know, legislatures, governments, police force, you name it. Um, it also involves the more uh, normative aspects of government, you know, how are actors supposed to behave uh, and are expected to, to do so, and how others look at them when they violate these norms. Um, there are questions about accountability, uh, about transparency, uh, and fundamentally about trust uh, between citizens and um, uh, those who govern those, those citizens. So to go back to 1997, uh, it was a momentous event because it really tried to enshrine into the Chinese system a very unusual type 
of government in Hong Kong, uh, the so-called SAR, the Special Administrative Region, which was not a province, not an independent entity, uh, but a city that was going to have a very high degree of autonomy, as, as the saying went, uh, within the context of being handed back to the People's Republic of China. And the pillars of uh, the uh, governance um, plan uh, were two documents. Uh, one is the Sino-British Declaration of 1984, signed by then Prime Minister Thatcher uh, and Premier Zhao Ziyang. Um, and then, which is an official international treaty deposited at the United Nations, although there's now some controversy about whether China feels bound by that treaty or not. Um, and the second pillar was the basic law, which is supposed to be, well, it used to be called the mini constitution. And in fact, we've seen over the years that constitution it was not, um, that governed basically the basic architecture of post-colonial Hong Kong with the chief executive, government functions, a number of uh, expectations that uh, uh, were laid out in terms of what kinds of laws could be passed. Um, and it began on a very, in a very awkward sort of way, right? So 84 is the signing of the agreement to uh, allow the handover by 1997. So an enormous amount of time uh, passed between those two points. And crucially, 1989 happened. And 1989 completely uh, changed uh, not only how China perceived Hong Kong, which had already a very significant degree of mobilization about you know, the student movement, but also how uh, Hong Kong uh, kind of perceived China with a significant wave of out-migration and people being very worried about what would happen after 1997, um, and uh, as well as the British government itself. So by the 1990s, uh, the last governor of, uh, of Hong Kong appointed by the UK, Christopher Patton, uh, who's now the chancellor in, in, in Oxford, um, decided that in order to reassure Hong Kong, a number of initiatives would be taken. There would be the construction of a new airport, which was very expensive and open immediately after the handover. There would be uh, an effort to democratize Hong Kong and organize elections for LegCo, the Legislative Council, uh, by basically an open suffrage, which had never happened before under British rule. Um, and that effectively began to build a relationship of profound mistrust or distrust between the mainland and the British, uh, because the airport was seen to be a waste of money. Uh, we don't hear that anymore. Uh, the um, uh, election by democratic vote was supposed to be a violation of uh, the, the treaty that was signed and the basic law. And so China appointed a preparatory committee that met in Shenzhen. And on the day of the handover, along with the People's Liberation Army walking into Hong Kong very symbolically, that prep committee moved into Hong Kong and effectively substituted itself as a temporary LegCo until a new round of elections could be held under the former agreement, right? which was seen as basically um, as very clear stand against democracy or against democratization. Um, <clears throat> over time, there were a number of ways by which um, the initial situation was kind of challenged by all sides, uh, both the government as well as, as the mass public. Uh, controversy about the famous Article 23 legislation about sedition law in, uh, I think, 2003, which was the first mass protest, really, uh, against the government on July 1st and led to a series of July 1st protests thereafter. 
Um, there were controversies about implementing the promise of a chief executive election by universal suffrage, which the opposition, well, the democratic camp, as it used to be called, uh, tried to push for, which went nowhere. Um, and then things kind of began to really escalate uh, around 2015, 2016, with this sort of umbrella movement, you know, that kind of caught around the world, uh, sort of Occupy, uh, Occupy uh, Wall Street, which turned into Occupy uh, Hong Kong and Occupy Central, uh, and very uh, uh, in-your-face confrontational demands, if you like, by the opposition to demand that there would be a, a formal move to introduce elections for the chief executive. And that marked a real turning point, I think, in the relationship uh, between the mainland and, and China. Um, this escalated uh, in, obviously, 19, 2019 with the student movement, um, and I think also because of Xi Jinping's own role. Uh, people who signed the original agreement were very open-minded, you know, Zhao Ziyang, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, as Margaret Thatcher used to say, these are people you can do business with. Uh, and the expectation that trust alone and interpersonal ties would be sufficient to kind of paper over the differences and, and make things work. And we've seen under Xi uh, a very, very hard line uh, about not tolerating any kind of challenges to uh, Hong Kong's status, uh, any challenge to um, the government in general, uh, and led to this uh, introduction of these uh, very draconian laws uh, in response to the demonstrations of 2019 uh, and the um, <clears throat> appointment of a uh, Beijing-backed kind of set of leaders who've now taken up residence uh, in Hong Kong, although I've heard during COVID they were mostly in Shenzhen, uh, in order to pilot basically by remote control Hong Kong, even though on paper it retains uh, the system of a chief executive. So the one country, two system, as it was called, uh, crashed and burned in many ways. It didn't reach its half-life. It was supposed to be up and running until 2047. Uh, and basically, the ambiguities of the agreement, uh, the distrust between all sides, uh, sometimes demands made that may not have been very realistic, uh, given what we know about Beijing's point of view, um, government being exceedingly cautious or nervous about the implications of uh, challenges by the population, really led to this kind of meltdown, institutional meltdown, and the, the end of elections as we knew them, the reorganization of LegCo, uh, and this sort of massive uh, crackdown on civil society organizations and groups and the media, you name it, uh, that effectively have moved Hong Kong closer to being a, uh, I would say not a normal Chinese city in a normal Chinese province, it's far from that, but, but much closer to being subject to the same set of rules that would apply to a major municipality of a major province. Right? And that is basically now uh, the new kind of equilibrium that, that, that we face. Well, thank you, Pierre. That was a very succinct uh, overview of a ton of um, Hong Kong history, the 25 years um, up until now. So I, I, you've put a ton on the table and I'm sure much of it will return to further in the discussion, but that's an extremely helpful overview. Um, turning, turning next to Chris, um, as a Hong Konger yourself and a journalist who's covered um, many of the events that Pierre mentioned, um, such as the umbrella movement and the protests in 2019, um, can you tell us about how the Hong Kong handover um, was viewed for Hong Kong identity, what it meant for Hong Kong identity in 1997 and how it's viewed now? 
Right. Back in 1997, I was only eight years old, so I can't really tell uh, what was the feeling at that point, but I can I can tell what happened afterwards. Uh, so for a little bit about personal experience is that uh, my generation uh, basically grew up after 1997, so I have no memory whatsoever about the, the colonial days, the past. Uh, so my generation was perhaps the first generation who were subject to um, the first uh, series of Mandarin uh, national education. Uh, in my high school days, um, I performed quite well. Um, so I was actually selected to go to Beijing to, to go to some of the so-called national education tours. Um, it was interesting. <clears throat> um, and, and then in 2008, that was the high point agreed by a lot of uh, people in 2008, there was a high point for Hong Kong people to feel like they were Chinese. Um, the, during the Olympics, uh, during uh, other events, they, they feel like they are part of the country, they're Chinese. But it fought afterwards. Um, one significant event by then was the Sichuan earthquake. Uh, Hong Kongers were sort of baffled the, the all the money donated by, by Hong Kong to, to mainland China. Where were they gone? Uh, why, why are the schools... Uh, falling down, why did people die and, and all that. And uh, that started the, the downward trend when the Hong Kong people started to find that um, the, the systems between Hong Kong and China simply could not really work with each other. Um, in, in that um, Hong Kong people since uh, maybe 2012, um, when Xi Jinping got to power and uh, Hong Kong Chief Executive CY Learn pushed forward national education curriculum, uh, people find that uh, it's not really acceptable in Hong Kong. Uh, they, they felt like a lot of the things, uh, the freedoms that they had, the freedoms that they were promised uh, that they will have in, in the future, say universal suffrage, as Pierre mentioned, are simply uh, seemingly never going to happen. Um, so in, in 2012, with new powerful figures uh, in, in the office, it, it seems everything's starting to crumble down. Uh, whereas people in Hong Kong are asking for more freedom and more democracy, that seems to become one of the identities of, of Hong Kong people afterwards. Uh, it doesn't really matter uh, what language they speak, what race they are, what kind of background they're from. I have a lot of friends who are from mainland China um, who are more like a typical Hong Kong person than anyone else in, on, on the mainland, whereas they, they seek democracy, they seek freedom, uh, they feel like there, there needs to be a change in Hong Kong, and that has become the main theme in, in Hong Kong for the past 10 years. Um, but even, even under that, <clears throat> if you look at young people, say, just in 2018, uh, a, a, we can see from the documentaries, from news reports, that then a lot of young people are still going to Shenzhen, let's say, for, for fun in the, in the weekends because it's, it's cheaper, it's close. Uh, they can go there for bubble tea, cheaper. They can go there for cinema, for other things. So, so it, the, the conflict was brewing, but it still wasn't going to happen just yet. But then in 2019, you, you see that a lot of these young people who used to spend time in mainland China, they watch Chinese TV programs, they follow Chinese TV stars. Um, they fall back into the grand agenda, the, the campaign for Hong Kong's democracy and freedom, because 
maybe even after so many years of national education of uh, the boost in China uh, in Chinese identity, it's still they they be believe that in, in Hong Kong, what's most important is the freedom. Um, that if they fear this kind of freedom is going to be lost, then we'll fight back. And even though, unfortunately, after the 2019 uh, protests, we see that the freedom that they have been protesting for uh, are now uh, being stripped away part by part. Um, but it's still going to be that theme uh, in, in the future, whether that's going to be in Hong Kong or even outside of Hong Kong. Um, in the past, if you interview people on the street protesting, especially young families, they would be very shy to talk about um, anything other than universal suffrage in Hong Kong. Uh, they would not talk about Hong Kong independence. Some would think that's very radical. Uh, some would think uh, the slogans now banned in Hong Kong were too radical even before they were banned. But if you go to a rally in, in, in the UK, in Australia, in other places right now about Hong Kong, it is these young family members with children who are maybe three years old, five years old, they are shouting Hong Kong independence. So um, I think the government, uh, whether the Hong Kong government or the Chinese government, would have to think about after all these years of trying to um, make Hong Kong people uh, Chinese nationals, uh, what have they done to gone to the current stage? Uh, why uh, families are leaving Hong Kong and why these families leaving are uh, becoming the worst of the nightmares that the, who are independent advocates uh, outside of Hong Kong. Thank you, Chris. Um, and as a member of the diaspora now, I know that you have your kind of your ear to the ground in those communities as well. So that's, um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for those perspectives. Um, and uh, last but not least, turning to Gina, uh, picking up a lot of the themes that, that Chris laid out, um, as a historian and scholar of language, um, English, Mandarin, Cantonese are all used in Hong Kong, um, and, but Cantonese is really deeply associated with Hong Kong identity. Um, Chris just mentioned some of the Mandarin education programs, um, and you know, obviously Cantonese is this uh, important kind of facet of Hong Kong identity. Can you explain a little bit about how politics and identity uh, meet in Hong Kong and what role the handover played in language politics. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, language plays a really, I think it's really both um, reflective of and important to the identity politics of Hong Kong historically and today. So as you mentioned, right, English, Mandarin, and Cantonese all play a role in Hong Kong's linguistic landscape, but really the lingua franca of Hong Kong is Cantonese. It's the primary language or the mother tongue of um, anywhere, but like, the number usually hovers around 90%, um, depending on, on sort of when you're looking at, at polls and such. Um, it is a Chinese language. It's spoken in not only in Hong Kong, but also um, throughout South China and around the world. Um, and it's a really linguistically distinct and mutually unintelligible language um, from, and again, mutually unintelligible with Mandarin, the national languages of, the, um, of Taiwan and the PRC. Right. Um, yet, while we often say that these three languages are important in Hong Kong, and we often refer to Hong Kong as being a city with Liang Wen San Yu or um, 
um, two scripts and three oral languages, right? The meaning of these languages and the language politics in Hong Kong are deeply affected by and reflective of broader political and cultural power inequities. I really think we need to focus on how these reflect um, cultural power. Um, and these dynamics have changed quite drastically before and after the handover if we sort of compare them. So for most of the period of British colonialism, um, there was no stated official language, but de facto the official language in Hong Kong was English, um, which is what all of sort of like official business was, was done in English. Um, and that created a fair amount of linguistic inequality, right? If you wanted to have any say or, or be a part of the really important power structures in Hong Kong, you needed to speak and write in English. Um, so in the 1970s, um, there were really sort of widespread um, activist movements driven largely by um, anti-colonial fervor. Um, and they recognized how the de facto use of English in Hong Kong reinforced the unequal power dynamics between the British colonial government and the majority Chinese population. And so they really focused on making Chinese an official language as a part of their protest agenda. And so in 1974, Chinese was made an official language in Hong Kong, um, which is fascinating because that can theoretically encompass dozens of oral languages, right? Um, and this ambiguity was purposeful, right? Um, for those who were sort of involved in the decision making, they understood that almost a lot of pe people in Hong Kong spoke Cantonese, but they understood, right, that they may at the end of colonization, um, when or sort of when that or if that would happen, that they may be a part of mainland China where the national language was Mandarin and they wanted to give space to that. But also there were, you know, lots and lots of lang Chinese language speaking communities in Hong Kong that spoke neither Mandarin or Cantonese like Shanghainese and others, right? So this decision fought back against British colonialism and empowered Chinese citizens of Hong Kong while also recognizing that Chinese languages were and are diverse. After the handover, however, and increasingly in the last decade, which I think Chris captured really well, um, the language politics of Hong Kong shifted and Cantonese has taken on this new significance. Um, and this again, to me, relates to power because today the power in inequity that many Hong Kongers instinctively recognize is not between the UK and, and Hong Kong, but between Hong Kong as a territory and an increasingly aggressive Beijing government that many believe are in, is intent on stripping away much of Hong Kong's autonomy, right? And to them, the language that represents that increasing encroachment on Beijing is Mandarin. Uh, now, Cantonese is still widely spoken um, and does have official recognition in Hong Kong. Um, Chris mentioned sort of the push for Mandarin education, um, which is true, right? But you can, like, Cantonese is still often the the language of instruction in Hong Kong and right and has been. Um, but many Hong Kongers fear that alongside the political repression that they're seeing with the national security law and policies like the Mandarin education law, that Beijing government, the Beijing government has and will continue to use sort of via the Hong Kong government um, a suppress Hong Kong's unique identity. Um, and the these efforts to sort of institutionalize Mandarin in schools or television or devalue Cantonese by calling it nothing more as a dialect as part of this broader effort, right? So in reaction to this, promoting Cantonese has been a way to fight back against that power inequity and assert an identity um, that is separate and distinct from the Chinese identity associated with Beijing, right? That's really empowering to be able to assert your own identity. So to sort of sum up here, the reason that I think, as one professor put it in 2019, that Cantonese has become this language of protest is because of how it represents not only Hong Kong identity, but also because it represents a way to fight back against what many see as the stark and growing power inequity between the Beijing government and Hong Kong citizens that affect the way people express and understand their own identity. Wow, really interesting, Gina. Um, 
So, so with this complicated uh, context in mind, um, with what uh, Pierre, Chris, and Gina have laid out for us, uh, we have this momentous um, anniversary coming up on uh, the, at the end of next week on Friday. Um, so 25th uh, anniversary of the Hong Kong handover. Uh, what can we expect this to look like um, in the context of all we just heard? Um, what can we expect it uh, to look like both in Hong Kong and for Hong Kongers, um, as well as what do we expect to see from Beijing? Uh, and Chris, I'll turn it to you to start, but Pierre and Gina, mm. feel free to chime in as well. Uh, right. Um, so in, in the newspapers these few days, uh, it has been talked about quite a, for quite a few days. Uh, uh, we still don't know whether Xi Jinping, Chinese president, will go to Hong Kong, but it seems schools and uh, the government and other groups are asking people to self-quarantine or quarantine in hotels for seven days uh, before the handover events. Um, so it will be a so-called closed-loop event. Uh, people who can or who are allowed invited to join the celebrations or even cover the celebrations will be selected. Um, so I, I'm not in Hong Kong right now, but I can guess the, the atmosphere in Hong Kong is not very concerned about the handover celebrations at all because they cannot join or a lot of people are not really interested in that anyway. Um, in a way, just now that there's a news about the jumbo floating restaurant in Hong Kong. So the, the restaurant on the sea in Hong Kong just capsized in South China Sea. I, I believe that will be the headlines in the next few days rather than the handover celebrations because there's not much people, Hong Kong people can do or can, can join for the celebrations. And um, really uh, with the new government uh, going uh, up in, in Hong Kong, uh, people are just not very, in a way, just not very interested in any uh, in politics anymore. I, I've seen a few Hong Kong friends over the past few days, they come to London to visit after two and a half years of not traveling. Uh, all they're concerned about, they know the situation politically will go worse and worse. All they're concerned about is whether the uh, second half of the year will it still continue to be 17, uh, seven days of quarantine back in Hong Kong or will it continue to grow again as COVID cases rise in Hong Kong again so that they cannot leave Hong Kong for traveling uh, once more? That's what people are concerned about. If they choose not to leave Hong Kong, can they go out to travel? Uh, will the economy going to, uh, going to get better uh, rather than the celebrations itself? Um. Either Pierre or Dina, do you want to chime in on what Beijing might expect from these uh, from this event coming up at the end of next week? Well, if I may, I mean, obviously, an important part of July 1st will be the inauguration of the new chief executive who's replacing Carrie Lam. Um, Beijing has laid out uh, basically a set of approvals and expectations. It's a two-part document about the new uh, cabinet that has just been uh, announced, not yet quite formally uh, appointed, uh, that will be in a few days. Um, and uh, of course, whether or not uh, this incarnation of the new system uh, is perceived to be uh, legitimate, trustworthy, uh, you name it, all these aspects of governance that I, I, I named uh, earlier in my, my presentation, will really come to the fore. I mean, this is a case of somebody who was handpicked by Beijing, who is a, who ran unopposed, even though he tried to very hard to have events as if he were opposed, but he wasn't. Um, and then um, has an entire career uh, in the police force. Um, as far as I can tell, never went to university. 
Um, so all of those characteristics of the new leader give pause to a lot of people about you know, the kind of leader he's going to be, um, how much support he will be able to gain from Beijing in overcoming both the sort of public uh, confidence crisis as well as the COVID crisis. Um, and you know how he around his team can also uh, think you know looking down the line you know 10 20 years uh, what kind of hong kong is going to emerge from this complete reorganization uh, of the system with the national security law and etc where there is frankly a lot of defiance uh, maybe not spoken out or spoken up uh, but people do vote with their feet uh, we um, talk about schools uh, last year, Hong Kong lost uh, 35,000 uh, students uh, from schools, just disappeared from the Hong Kong educational system and never re-registered. Right? So imagine the number of parents and siblings. That is the size of an entire mid-sized European town that just got vaporized and made up entirely of children right? that has uh, left. So... This is a huge challenge. And I think the, the problem that now the new government faces is trust. Uh, and it's also what political science political scientists call the, the dictator's dilemma, which is that now that channels of expression have been suppressed, uh, I think very harshly and very successfully, if I may say so, uh, the government is basically flying blind. The government has no way of knowing the true state of public opinion because it's basically destroyed all of the battery of institutions and instruments that would allow it to know what the average Hong Kong citizen is truly thinking, right? And we know that the starting values were not very high, uh, to say the least. Um, so going forward, that's a huge challenge, right? And it's a challenge that all authoritarian regimes face, but I think in the Hong Kong context, that's particularly problematic, uh, given the, the sort of contested history of, of, of state society relations in the city. Great, really helpful. Um, so we're, we've kind of spoken around this, but I wanna ask directly about um, the national security law and um, and this kind of uh, ecosystem of political, um, you know, voicing of political discontent in, in Hong Kong that has really changed after the passing of the law. Um, so, you know, on what, so for, I think many of our audience know the national security law was passed in 2020 um, and it effectively was been the end of organized political opposition. And yet, at the same time, there's this kind of a uh, cloud of COVID covering um, the events as well. So, with the pandemic procedures and the you know regulations preventing people from gathering, as well as the kind of unclear implications of the national security law, um, you know, there's kind of this muddy water about kind of what post-pandemic life in Hong Kong will look like. So, how would um, starting with Pierre, how would you evaluate the post-national um, security law Hong Kong environment? What do you expect the impacts to look like? And um, to what extent do you believe the U.S. claims or interpret the U.S. claims that this is the end of autonomy in Hong Kong? Um, I think basically it's certainly the end of the autonomy as it was designed um, in uh, 1997 or 1984. Um, the law is a very interesting piece of legislation uh, because it was not even passed by the uh, by Lechko. Uh, it was directly imposed as a document issued by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress in Beijing <clears throat> and then passed as a mainland law that directly applies to Hong Kong in a sort of vertical manner, right? which is an enormous shock uh, to people who 
uh, still claimed that uh, Hong Kong was a place with rule of law. And it was really a moment where Hong Kong became a rule by law uh, kind of regime where um, there is no negotiation uh, and society has to just take it. Uh, this was followed by a number of you know, arrests, Jimmy Lai and a few others um, who, who were uh, quickly uh, taken away. Um, and so I think the next wave was going to be whether uh, the initial kind of implementation that targeted very well-known opposition members uh, in Hong Kong society will expand to other groups, right? There are worries about, is this going to target um, companies or uh, teachers uh, or even foreigners uh, or um, um, you know, the religious organizations that still operate in Hong Kong, the archbishop was actually arrested recently on those grounds. So, uh, well, former archbishop. So, so this is very much uh, a huge, uh, a huge question. And of course, the, the government uh, does not want to signal how far it's willing to push, how far it's willing to go, whether this is a campaign that will sort of die down the way many political campaigns in China have died down over time or whether this really marks a fundamental shift in the institutional structure and a return of a, well, the creation of a very hard line uh, judicial police surveillance uh, apparatus that is going to characterize the city for, for decades to come, right? We don't know that yet, right? This is still very much uh, up in the air. Um. If, if I might actually sort of add on to this. So I, I agree with everything you've said, Pierre. I think it's it's um, really thoughtful. Um, and um, I, I think things are really bleak right now um, and that the national security law has profoundly redetermined what freedom and empowerment looks like in Hong Kong. And it's a reality that almost radically overnight um, shifted the culture um, and everyday life there. Um, although I, so when I when I read this question, I heard this question about um, the end of autonomy, however, um, as a historian, I always sort of um, am wary of declaring the end of anything, <laughs> right? Um, we, we, partly because sometimes we declare the end of things and it's not the end of things and then, and then um, we look silly, um, but also because I think historians understand that 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 uh, sort of things that happen are often very unpredictable, right? Um, and 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 so I mean, Hong Kong has a really unique sense of what autonomy means. It has um, for most of its history. Um, for all of its history, right? Um, and it stems from a long history of everyday people and grassroots movements working to empower the people of Hong Kong and improve their lives. And this is something that has been pushed for and happened under another non-democratic government, right? But um, before 1997. Um, and so to me saying, I, I, I'm, I'm wary of saying that sort of the end of something or the death of something in part because we just, we have no idea what might happen. I think Pierre really thoughtfully pointed out, right? That we don't really know what's happening on the ground. But also, I, I think just taking myself out of my historian's lens and just being my, my, my human lens, right, is that declaring the death or end of something robs us of hope. Um, there are um, people right now in Hong Kong and outside of it who are sort of like hopeful and, and imagining and fighting for um, a, 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 not a Hong Kong that's sort of back what it was or something, but something entirely new that, that, that um, reimagines autonomy and freedom and 
really unique and empowering ways. And, and I worry that saying sort of like the end of something, I, we do say that in the United States a lot. And I think we should be wary of that because I think it, it sort of disregards or erases the work that, that people are doing right now to reimagine what Hong Kong's future could be, even if it seems really um, long shot at this point. Um, I just have something to add to the point as well. I agree with everything. Um, so uh, on the end of something, um, even after the end of Apple Daily Stand News, the staff members are now trying to open the, the news outlets by themselves, often a small team of two people, three people, or even just one person. Uh, they're trying very hard to secure funding, to secure news stories. So obviously there are a lot of people still trying to work hard on that. And on the front of the national security law, um, I think it's only the beginning of it rather than the end, because even the government itself was trying to uh, find significant cases, landmark cases, to try how to execute and implement uh, the provisions in the law. Sometimes um, when a judge, uh, so-called national security law, select a judge, uh, place a judgment, a sentence on someone, the prosecution, the government would say, your judgment is incorrect because that's not what the law says. And then the judge has to go back on it and change the sentence to increase the sentence because uh, in one case, the national security law says uh, the sentence has to be over five years and the judge gave less than five. So she has to change the judgment. And then also uh, under the John Lee government, uh, he has already proposed to expand the national security law because there are other provisions that are not included in the um, version implemented by Beijing. Uh, so uh, including uh, theft of state secrets, including uh, espionage. Uh, we don't know how these things are going to be used in Hong Kong. There are already a ton of things in the arsenal of the Hong Kong government, but now they're going to be more uh, and also the fake news law and, and all that. Um, so it's only going to be the start of the national security law era when they try to find out how to use it in Hong Kong uh, with uh, one thing worse in Hong Kong when compared to the mainland in that in, in the mainland, if you are an activist, uh, you do something or you, you are preparing to do something. The national security police can invite you to drink tea before formally arresting you to give a warning to you. Uh, but, but in Hong Kong, that system is seemingly not in place yet. So for the National Security Police, oftentimes the first step for a lot of people is that without any warning, they're already being, being arrested. Uh, no one knows where the red line is. No one knows where to shut up, uh, when, to, uh, when they will get an invitation by the police to drink tea uh, and then at some point at 6 a.m. one day, people will knock on the doors and get arrested. So kind of drawing upon these themes, it sounds like um, there's there's the city is not dead. And thank you, Gina, for that uh, historian's perspective. And, and there's also this period of kind of codification of new norms and of new expectations. And these lines, these red lines are definitely still being um, Kind of established in the next period so it seems like there's a lot to watch in hong kong and try to understand how this is going to kind of unfold um following back on a theme that you mentioned earlier chris about um hong kong identity and you had mentioned in your opening comments that actually some of the uh response to protest 
has maybe radicalized um, some of the Hong Kong community that's now moved overseas, the young parents that you mentioned. Um, turning to this question of identity and, and kind of how that's playing out in Hong Kong, um, over a decade ago, um, if you had surveyed Hong Kongers, most of them would have considered themselves Hong Kong Chinese or Chinese residing in Hong Kong or Chinese in, in some way if, um, through the lens of Hong Kong. But now uh, it's in the you know successive years of protest, it seems that most people when surveyed refer to themselves as Hong Konger rather than Chinese. Um, how is this changing identity in Hong Kong um, for you know, the ways that Hong Kongers understand their own identity and, and how it plays into this political landscape that uh, is now unfolding? Right. Um, I think uh, through the last 10 years, um, it, it's a work in progress, but a lot of Hong Kong people has discovered in a way what what they are, how they're different from uh, the mainland Chinese people, um, in, in that the set of core values that Chinese people uh, believe in, like I said, uh, freedom, democracy, or transparency, uh, when they encounter the, the migration of the Chinese system into the Hong Kong system, uh, people feel uh, maybe endangered, worried, or, or, or even just not safe. They feel like this is not the way how we do things, this is not the way how we do business, or something like that. Um, but uh, this is also in, in a way kind of dangerous in that Hong, the Hong Kong, if the Hong Kong identity is based on what is not the Chinese identity, that will, that will be a bit vague. So I think it, it takes time for Hong Kong people to continue to find what exactly defines Hong Kong people uh, in, in, in the future, especially because there are now community in Hong Kong, there are now communities outside of Hong Kong, and even with uh, the technology, uh, unlike in the past, in the 80s and 90s, when Hong Kong people mass migrated to, say, Canada and Australia, and they become uh, very different communities. How do this community uh, continue to stay on uh, as one group, or how are the diaspora going to work with the Hong Kong uh, community? What are the things that people can do outside and people cannot do inside Hong Kong, how can they help each other in terms of information supply, uh, or even how they are going to help each other in, in terms of um, safeguarding the culture. Um, how do you celebrate your festivals? How do you uh, pass on Cantonese? These are a lot of, a lot of questions people are continuously uh, debating, uh, even after they move outside of Hong Kong. And there are no answer yet, but I, I, I can only assure people that the Hong Kong identity will probably go on uh, for a long time, as we see uh, Tibetan or, or Uyghur populations, there are second generation, third generations uh, Tibetans or Uyghurs who are born outside of Tibet, born outside of Xinjiang, they have never been there, but they, uh, they are quite active in fighting for freedoms and democracy in their own homeland, even though uh, all they know was passed on by their parents, their friends. Um, would it happen to Hong Kong people? I don't know, uh, but maybe. Yeah, that's um, a, a very like a good, it's a very moving image that you've described and, and something that I think that we can all definitely think of as a hopeful outcome of, of uh, the communities that have formed outside of Hong Kong at the moment. Um, and, and turning the, um, the lens back towards what's happening in China, I mean, I think these dynamics are not, um, you know, a mystery to the, to the Chinese system as well. They see the Hong Kong identity 
and see, as Gina mentioned, some of the power dynamics and struggles between language and how that works in, in Hong Kong itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the changes in the Hong Kong curriculum, the education curriculum and language curriculum and how that's being uh, played out within, within Hong Kong? That's me, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so I, I so I think what we're seeing is a real push for um, for patriotic education, right? Um, and and molding young minds, I think, is a, is another way that 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 was put by Beijing. Um, and to me, the kind of patriotism that we're seeing pushed in the education system is one grounded in defining what it means to be Chinese, right? In a way that takes an ethnic identity, a national identity, and and a political identity, right? As as far as 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 um, loyalty to or or approval of a particular political system, and taking all of those different meanings of Chinese um, and combining them into one unified notion of what it means to be Chinese that is that is really quite hegemonic, right? Um, and with sort of creating this this one unified hegemonic notion of Chineseness is defining all other ways of understanding what it means to be Chinese, um, whether it's sort of just like ethnic or whether it's just national or whether it's sort of disagreeing with what ethnic means um, as subservient to this to this bigger hegemonic one. Um, and I think this is something we see in China, right? Um, and it's I think we're seeing echoes of those efforts by the Hong Kong government in Hong Kong. Um, in spaces like education and public media, there are real efforts to emphasize, actually, I think, Chris, you put this well, and I'll sort of like condense what you said into saying like that Hong Kongers are Chinese first, Hong Kongers second, right? Um, and I think that these efforts have a dual effect for those who are still committed to the messaging of the 2019 protests, Beijing's efforts to emphasize sort of Chinese first and Hong Kong second, undercut or discredit um, defining Hong Kong as a space or Hong Konger as an identity in a way that emphasizes autonomy. And it doesn't even have to be nationalism here, like Hong Kong nationalism or independence, but anything other than just full subservience of the Hong Kong identity under and subservient to the Chinese one. Um, to me, the second goal here is to prime young people who don't yet have the experience um, to, or like, urge to assert strong political opinions to make to take this kind of definition of what it means to be Chinese as normalized, right? And that doesn't mean people can't push back against it, but once something is normalized, it's much harder to try and complicate it or question it. Um, and I'll bring in one sort of one example from the news recently. Um, a few days ago, uh, several local Hong Kong papers, and then after that, the New York Times ran a story about um, uh, uh, history textbooks that are currently being sort of under review. Um, and within it, they pushed that Hong Kong um, was never a British colony. Uh, and the reasoning here was that because China never recognized the treaties that led to British colonization, um, that and that like therefore that colon like that like status of colony was invalid. Um, we're giving China a really big like sort of like amount of power on the world stage here, right? Um, to say that if this this treaty is invalid, that it doesn't count, right? Um, that nothing else counts. Um, and um, and there and Hong Kong has always been part of. Chinese territory inalienably so and so therefore colonization like didn't happen right um, and what's striking to me about this story is that it shows a remarkable effort to downplay any narrative that treats Hong Kong as having a distinct history from China um, and um, 
And, and um, which is really quite a striking resemblance to similar narratives about spaces like Taiwan or Xinjiang or, or, or Tibet, um, which are also treated as inalienably part of China and downplaying any history that, that takes um, that space and the people who live there away from the sort of like grand narrative of Chinese history. And this really matters, right? The way that we understand the past directly impacts what futures we deem possible. Uh, the histories we tell shape who we are now and who we can be. Um, and so teaching histories like this that narrow the ways in which Hong Kongers can see themselves in history um, similarly narrows the kinds of historical trajectories that people can tether their past and future selves to. And that to me represents the kind of patriotism the Hong Kong government and sort of also Beijing seeks to instill here. Really interesting. So it sounds like um, from what Chris and Judith has described, we've got this growing gulf between um, a uh, system in, in China that's reinforcing a narrative of, of um, kind of patriotic education and then this community and diaspora that's really advocating for Hong Kong values and Hong Kong identity um, in outside of Hong Kong. So we've got this uh, attention building between these two groups are kind of Gulf, Gulf growing um, and put this all in the context of downturn in US-China relations and a global um, uh, atmosphere that's changing its, its view towards China. Um, where do we see this going? Um, the question I'll ask to you, Pierre, it's a big one. It's the last question I'll ask before turning to Q&A. So I've got to make it a really complicated and big one to really uh, get the most out of this. But just, um, you know, we've got this context where the US is passing legislation like the Hong Kong Autonomy Act in Congress. And a lot of this seems very counterproductive. The US is trying to respond to this, um, this challenge. It, it, to, from my perspective, at least it doesn't seem like we found a great way to do this yet, yet as Americans. Um, and there's this you know, broader US-China tension, yet Hong Kong uh, is its own issue as well. So how does, how does this all get balanced? How, do, how does the US fit into this? Well, I think there are you know, several things on the table right now that, that will probably define um, the future of the relationship. I mean, one, of course, is who's in charge in Washington with what kind of program. And of course, we don't know uh, what will happen in 2024, but if there were to be a return to the kinds of policies uh, that the Trump administration put in place, we could expect uh, even more of these kinds of sanctions and, and confrontational uh, tactics uh, targeting either you know, sectors of the economy, perhaps the stock market, perhaps the Hong Kong dollar, perhaps <coughs> even in well, more individuals um, in the government. Um, but that depends very much on the US political cycle as well. And that's very uh, hard to, to predict. Uh, much will depend on what happens uh, to uh, the politics in Beijing, right? Xi Jinping um, is supposed to be re-elected, presumably for five years. <clears throat> there were rumors of debates, uh, if not conflict, uh, within the uh, central elite in Beijing uh, due to how COVID has been handled and how the economy has been kind of bruised very badly by uh, these uh, repeated lockdowns. And the kind of housing you know, crisis is, is, is very large. So depending on basically how things that seem to be kind of exogenous or random uh, that have happened in, in, in recent uh, or will happen in the next few, few months, we may have very different configurations uh, of, uh, of power. The second player, and that's really very important, are uh, international corporations that used to have headquarters or at least a very significant presence in Hong Kong, uh, and whether they will uh, tolerate the system as it exists, including COVID restrictions, um, or walk away, 
right? So there have been a number of surveys taken by the chambers of commerce, uh, mostly American and European, that have uh, pointed at the fact that a huge proportion, you know, 30 to 50 percent of companies are considering scaling down or withdrawing from Hong Kong if they haven't done so already, right? That could be an enormous blow to uh, uh, to the sort of idea of you know Asia's um, global city as they you know they or Asia's world city as the, the slogan used to be, and um, you know for the United States that's also a question because if all of the players withdraw from Hong Kong then you lose leverage right and so it makes Hong Kong look even more like a Chinese city if uh, foreign players don't stick around uh, and there's a significant amount of evidence that they are a lot of executives for example in finance have moved to uh, um, Singapore um, and finally I think the huge the trump card I mean excuse the, the joke is whether international governments will recognize or keep recognizing Hong Kong as a meaningfully distinct entity within China that it deserves a special treatment for all sorts of things visas travel rules um, you know, uh, air transport agreements, uh, shipping rules, accountancy rules, uh, listing on the stock market, um, and even the role of the Hong Kong dollar as a convertible international currency, right, which I think is probably more secure than everything else I've just mentioned. Um, and of course, all of these factors, you know, uh, are hugely important to the role of American firms and, and foreign firms in general uh, in Hong Kong and will gravely or greatly shape uh, the kind of Hong Kong that we will see emerge uh, in the next uh, decade or so. Thank you, Pierre. Um, and um, so we're going to turn now to audience questions. And I'll start with a question that came in um, from an audience member. But as a reminder to others who have questions as they've been hearing this conversation, um, you can hit the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen and, um, and add a question there. And we can try to get to as many as we can while we have our speakers here with us. Um, and just a reminder, if you do have a, if you want to direct your question to a specific person, please outline that in the question. Um, so, so staying on that theme, I'll ask an audience question from Sean Savage. Um, he asks what the economic fallout of the loss of freedom in Hong Kong will be. And I, you've touched on this, Pierre, but can we just drill into that question, uh, that aspect of the question, um, before turning to a different subject? Uh, do you want to, do you want to kick us off again, Pierre? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I, I touched on the question of the dollar. I mean, basically, if you think about the, the core elements of Hong Kong that still remain highly distinctive, uh, regardless of the politics and the social uh, upheaval, it's the fact that Hong Kong remains an international financial center, has a thriving stock market, and has a convertible currency, which is basically the only conduit, you know, even for mainland actors, to conveniently move capital in and out of China uh, because the renminbi is only convertible on uh, current accounts. And so that's basically uh, imports, exports, and a small proportion of services, but investment, uh, large investments are not still uh, fully uh, free and convertible. So you can just go and buy your renminbi and, 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 and move your cash into China or the converse. So that's far from that. So Hong Kong is absolutely essential uh, to at least the part of the Chinese economy that remains very open uh, and to the players in China, including political leaders who value uh, having access to uh, a convertible currency. Um, 
Now, there are trends that I think the audience need to keep in mind and numbers that are very important, I think, to, to never forget. Um, in 1992, you know, three years after June 4th, when Hong Kong was beginning to reimagine its relationship with the mainland, the size of the Hong Kong economy represented approximately 25% of the GDP of China. 25% for a city of then approximately 5.5 to 6 million people. Today, uh, the population has grown to about 7.5 or so million. Uh, it is 2.5%, 10 times lower. So the value of Hong Kong to the Chinese elite, to the Communist Party or to Xi Jinping, however you want to frame that, is far reduced. And so that really raises the issue of what kind of economic uh, uh, freedoms or economic conditions are going to be allowed to, uh, to remain um, in a city that at the end of the day um, lacks, political, lacks economic importance uh, increasingly, but has these two really weird features that the Chinese side doesn't have. Now, if Xi Jinping or his successor um, decide to freely you know, open the balance of payments of China, move to a proper foreign exchange regime and make the renminbi completely convertible, then all of the distinctiveness of Hong Kong will have disappeared. And that is the ultimate long-term threat to the future of Hong Kong. Um, just to add a little bit to Pierre, uh, we can look at the recent news of uh, Russia uh, allowing some people to buy uh, Hong Kong listed stocks and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange saying there's no such thing. Uh, we don't fully understand what this incident means, how it's going to uh, go on, but it seems uh, that is the, for now, still the systematic advantage of Hong Kong being having a stock exchange and uh, exchangeable currency. Uh, another issue to, to look at Hong Kong in terms of economy is the unemployment rate, which is quite high, uh, in a way even higher than the, than the UK. And I've spoken to people who move from Hong Kong to the UK who are sort of like grassroots uh, working class people. Uh, they actually find better life in the UK than in Hong Kong. And if the economy economic situation in Hong Kong continues to be like that, there would be more and more people considering to, to leave Hong Kong to the UK or other countries to look for better opportunities because um, traveling, jobs, and uh, schools, these are all factors for, for Hong Kong people to consider to move. If I could just add a, a tiny sort of, I think, bigger picture thing, um, because uh, uh, the, the sort of specifics here are not my area of expertise, but I think oftentimes reading this question, I think there's an there's a there's an instinctual, in particular in the United States and in, in, in and I think in Western Europe, um, this presumption that um, the less politically free a space is, the less economically free or prosperous a space is. Um, and I think that like recent history, um, or even not even that recent history, has shown that uh, quite frankly, authoritarianism and um, uh, like economic growth can be quite compatible. <laughs> um, and so in, in hearing and, and, and also hearing Chris's point about unemployment, my guess is that um, just looking at how uh, the government in Beijing treats mainland China, um, that is something my guess is that they're very worried about. Right. Um, I think one of the promises that you hear from rhetoric coming from Beijing is that don't worry about the political system. We will econ like economically, you will be very prosperous and, and you'll have a good life and, and social mobility. Um, and don't worry about things like right to protest or, or, or freedom of information, right? Um, and so my guess is that if if 
if China, and again, I, as a historian, I don't love to predict things, but if China is going to treat Hong Kong like it treats its population in China in terms of, in mainland China, in terms of sort of social stability, that will be a priority. I disagree slightly in the sense that the relationship between the economy and, uh, and democracy um, is mostly based on non-financial services, kind of GDP and production of goods and stuff that employ labor in large quantities and so on. What's very unique about Hong Kong is the enormous reliance on open networks, open information and open disclosure that is absolutely core to the functioning of the financial system, banks uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, and that I think places a lot of uh, pressure on uh, decision makers to decide basically up to what point do they want to suppress uh, news or, or suppress disclosure of information when markets require you know instantaneous access to data um, and that's going to be I think an enormous challenge going forward. Yeah, uh, one point uh, additionally to that, it's uh, the Hong Kong government has uh, restricted some access to the company registry. Uh, it has made it very difficult for journalists to look for information. But so far, uh, if you are a stock trader, if you are work, if you work in investments, uh, if you want to look at companies, uh, the, the information is still okay. Uh, but we'll, we'll continue to see how how it will develop in the future, and that's exactly like Pierre said that will. Uh, be a main factor for, for the financial sec uh, sector and other people to consider whether they will stay in Hong Kong, whether they can get information, correct information, transparent information instantly. I think you picked up on my, my brainwaves, Chris. I was going to ask a question along these lines as well for journalists as well as for academic research. We have a few questions that came into the chat around that those lines. Hong Kong um, has long been a hub for for access to information about China and you know a free a free academic um, space for collaboration and interaction. Um, what is the future of um, this information ecosystem going to look like in Hong Kong? Um, if anyone wants to chime in, Chris, I mean you're the journalist, so why don't you go? <laughs> 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 um, I, I think one of the issues I, I notice uh, in, in Hong Kong these days are uh, in the past I'll receive tons of press invitations, uh, press conferences from um, the civil society, uh, from NGOs, from different kinds of groups uh, uh, petitioning for different kinds of uh, better treatment for people. But right now, there's nothing. Um, uh, if people have something to say, not even uh, about political issues, like how how do you treat uh, homeless people better? How do you Im improve the rights of um, uh, LGBTQ people? Uh, there's nothing. It's it's all quiet. Uh, people, I don't know if they are uh, scared to afraid to say something, or there's simply no more groups doing all these kind of things. Um, it's not good for for Hong Kong society as a whole. Um, and people don't know what's happening in other people's life. Uh, and people have to guess what's what's going on um, for this person, that person who used to be in civil society. Have they gone to the UK? Have they gone for asylum somewhere else? And uh, every few days we will hear, oh, someone is now in London. Someone is now in Edinburgh. Uh, civil society, it's non-existent and uh, that is one way uh, that information are not getting out and we can only hear from these people once outside of Hong Kong. 
my guess is that Pierre has more to say about things like I am thinking of in terms of sort of like material and library access and such like that in terms of economic space or sorry, um, in terms of academic research. Um, but one of the things that that makes me fearful and sad is that Hong Kong used to be a space where we got an enormous amount of information from China, largely via refugees um, and sort of like people who are seeking political asylum um, and um, and or, or sort of are, are fearful of, of talking about things that happened in China, but can do so freely in Hong Kong. Um, my fear is that that might start to go away if it has not already. Um, I think that that people are are less willing than they used to be to be interviewed um, um, by academics. Um, there's a there's a chilling of that environment, um, and so um, I, in thinking about sort of like in the 1960s, right, when when historians used to do research on China, we would largely go to to Hong Kong and Taiwan, and and now I'm thinking that. Um, Increasingly, we're going to see people going to diasporic communities outside of, of, of East Asia for this kind of information um, because of what's happening in Hong Kong. Yes. On the other hand, one, one aspect that I think we should never forget is that um, movement into Hong Kong continues. It's actually one of the key weapons or cards that the government can use, which is that as Cantonese communities uh, recede from Hong Kong, uh, usually, <clears throat> it's fairly easy for the Chinese side to facilitate immigration into Hong Kong by mainland uh, professionals, uh, in particular, um, and families or even kids you know, to fill the schools. <clears throat> so um, that whole uh, kind of process of what it means to, say, study China uh, changes. It also means that if you talk to mainland, recent mainland immigrants, who, by the way, are not ho homogeneous necessarily as to how they look at the mainland and how they look at Hong Kong or think about the, the big world out there um, is also a very interesting window on kind of how Chinese society is thinking, evolving, and particularly some of the most you know, educated, highly movable, dynamic, fairly wealthy uh, elements uh, of the mainland that I think can be a good read about how things are, 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 are developing. But there's no question that uh, a lot of what used to be possible is no longer possible uh, or is less uh, possible. <clears throat> Barriers are going up uh, in libraries, uh, in universities, and a fair amount of academics, uh, frankly, have left Hong Kong uh, or are in the process of leaving Hong Kong. Uh, we don't know yet, of course, what the equilibrium will look like. You know, is this going to be a, a small trickle at the beginning or a huge majority of say people with options uh, will will decide to to go um, but these are very profound uh, questions about the the future of hong kong as a sort of service oriented financial center academic research oriented techie kind of place right uh, what is required to make these sorts of places tick uh, is very different from the kind of export-led growth model of the economy that china had in dongguan you know there is absolutely no relationship between the two um, and that has me very concerned that I think the mainland and the Hong Kong government, I think, have vastly underestimated the importance of cultivating these kinds of ties um, and making sure that, you know, people just don't throw the towel and, you know, get on an airplane one at midnight at Sheplakok Airport, uh, never to come back again, right? Uh, that's uh, absolutely fundamental to the future of Hong Kong. Yeah, um, and staying, staying on that theme here, um, there was a, a question that's come in from a member of our staff, Jody Seeger, who's asking about perceptions. You talked a lot about the, um, the mainland uh, 
migrants who are coming in to fill the, you know, the school slots in Hong Kong and all of that. Um, how has the view of Hong Kong shifted in mainland China in recent years? You know, around 1997, there was this view that it was a very aspirational place to be, and it was quite positive perception of Hong Kong. Um, obviously, now uh, public perception in mainland China has shifted. China has changed quite a lot, but the public perception has shifted as well. Um, much more kind of uh, seeing the Hong Kong protesters as troublemakers and um, unpatriotic. Can you talk a little bit about those perceptions and how that's influencing um, the new dynamics in Hong Kong and also decision making in Beijing? Well, I mean, the, the word out is that basically mainlanders, ordinary Chinese, uh, regard Hong Kong as like spoiled children uh, who don't appreciate what they have and want even more. Uh, and kind of have been pushing the envelope uh, beyond what was reasonable and acceptable, and as a result are paying the price for it, and they just stare and look and say, look, we told you so, right? Um, there's also, I think, a great deal of um, uh, kind of uh, perhaps jealousy or anger at the fact that some freedoms uh, are available that were not available. A funny example uh, during the spring, was this moment when during a weekend when the rules were slightly relaxed for social distancing, a huge number of Hong Kongers went to the beach on the weekend. Uh, and there was enormous backlash uh, from Shenzhen residents who said, you know, what is the government thinking? We tried to get zero COVID. You claim that you're going to fight this whole thing. And here are the, you know, spoiled Hong Kong people going out to hang out on the beach while we're having de facto lockdowns. What's going on, right? And the government turned around very quickly and closed the beaches. <laughs> so um, they have since been reopened, but it gives you a sense of that. And there is a real, I think, a real um, perception of, of, of difference, uh, to some degree, unfairness uh, between, between the two sides, uh, also based on you know, incomplete information. I mean, most mainlanders don't go to, to Hong Kong. Most Hong Kongers don't go to the mainland. Um, and the media, you know, sort of processes that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so it's, it's a very complicated relationship. And it goes back to, you know, what was discussed earlier about these identity questions. You know, what does it mean to be a Hong Konger and a Cantonese Hong Konger to have, you know, rights, responsibilities, and expectations about your government? as opposed to being a mainland citizen who's supposed to you know, behave according to the uh, uh, expectations uh, of the party. Right? Um, and those two sets of expectations are still very different. If I may, I, I'd like to, I, I agree entirely with, with, with everything Pierre said, and I'd like to add to me sort of two, I guess, competing notions, I think, of, of, of what the way that that people in mainland China, less the government, but more people in mainland China sort of view Hong Kong. So on the one hand, I do think that there is um, there there is resentment that I, I actually think stems back pretty far before the 2019 protests, um, because um, for a long time, right, and, and I think this really sort of picked up in the last 10 years or so, um, is that mainland Chinese people would go to Hong Kong and feel like they were treated differently. Um, or treated poorly, right? Um, and is some of this is based in like sort of viral videos where you have people in Hong Kong sort of shaming mainland people they feel are are, are creating are acting badly, right? Um, but they're they're when I would talk to people when I lived in China, you know, five ten years ago, there was a lot of like they look down on us um, kind of thing, and and I think that those narratives resonate um, with people that then merges with everything Pierre just said about the 2019 protests and sort of the spoiled children in the beaches and these kinds of things. I'd, I'd also argue, however, that um, 
and and I and I saw this happen with Taiwan um, when I when I would talk to people in mainland China, and I think similar things are happening now, where the government has has done a good job of 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 first sort of suppressing information about the 2019 protests and then very carefully picking things about the 2019 protests to feed to its population, right? And what that has allowed them to do is not only sort of like really demonize the protest movement, um, but also make it see, make it possible for people to imagine this to be a small number of people, um, if not like influence from the outside. So that textbook I mentioned about like Hong Kong was never a British colony also um, frames the 2019 protests as extremist um, against national security and influenced by outside forces. And that allows people in mainland China who like Hong Kong, who have been to Hong Kong, who have a positive view of Hong Kong to be like, well, that's just a small percentage. That's not representative of, of Hong Kongers. Um, it's still a beautiful city. We can still go shopping. It's still got like, you know, a lovely port and these kinds of things. Um, and so I think that allows that sort of cognitive dissonance for people who see Hong Kong as part of China and wants to think positively of it allows that, like allows them to solve that cognitive dissonance. Um, I want to talk about Shanghai a little bit because when when Hong Kong sort of escaped a lockdown that didn't happen and then Shanghai has a lockdown, um, sort of people in Hong Kong or also, also even in Shanghai, they were screen having screenshots of comments on Weibo, uh, having Shanghai people um, being furious about the lockdowns, <clears throat> being furious of, of the treatment of their own. And people are saying, now you enjoy the fist of socialism. I mean, that's a very good thing to say. But it, it seems like uh, in, in China, it takes because of the lack of information, free, free and open information, it takes people um, quite a horrifying experience to understand um, what people in Hong Kong or even what people in other places are facing in terms of difficulties. Um, I, I have a friend who uh, came with me to the same fellows program uh, in, in the US who's from China, who's doing NGO in China. Uh, he, he was often invited to tea with police officers. Um, uh, when I finally spoke to him after three years, last I, I met him in 2019, uh, he told me he didn't know anything about 2019 in Hong Kong. Um, but he understands the situation, so he sympathizes more with Hong Kongers. Um, but it takes quite a lot of experience, so a very different experience for for mainlander to understand what's really going on. And I wouldn't expect most of the mainland population to to really understand because of that lack of information. Sorry, one one last thing I'll add on on tack onto that is. I, I think that there's probably actually more sympathy for the 2019 protests in mainland China than, than we know or can possibly know. Um, I remember being in Guangzhou in, the, in, in 2014 and talking to people who very quietly told me that they supported the umbrella protests, but wouldn't sort of say that out loud or in a public sort of space. So I think that there's a lot of diversity of opinions on Hong Kong in mainland China that is very much affected by, by as you mentioned, Chris, lack of information um, or very specific information. But um, I think I think they run the gamut. Thank you. And we're just about at time. We have one minute left. And I'm going to try to squeeze in one last question for Chris before we sign off. Um, Chris, for those in the audience who want to hear from Hong Kongers, um, what do you recommend that they follow? Are there any Twitter accounts or, um, or newspapers, blogs? What do you recommend people read mm -hmm. to, to stay up to date on Hong Kong? 
Um, I, I don't have the whole list right now. I think it is just to follow all the new media started by people who used to work in Apple Daily Send News. They are the same people. They just work on the topics uh, they used to work on. Uh, say uh, this one in, is in Chinese. It's called The Witness. So it's the core team of the Send News because court news is very important right now. Um, there is also, I think, called Channel C. Uh, which is sort of like the spot news department of Apple Daily. So you can find all these new media uh, started within the last one or two years, and they're trying to basically do the same thing with much uh, fewer resources, um, trying hard to stay afloat. Well, thank you so much, Chris, and huge thanks to our panelists today, um, Chris, Tina, and Pierre, for really, really helping our audience understand um, both the history of the of, of Hong Kong and its relationship to mainland China and to Great Britain, as well as the handover and how that's going to be interpreted in Hong Kong um, today at the um, in the anniversary coming up on the on the on July 1st. Um, so huge thanks to the three of you and huge thanks to the National Committee team behind the scenes who made this happen. Um, with a special thanks to William Chu, who's our intern right now, who's a Hong Konger Chinese himself and who helped put together some of the questions and research for this event. Um, so thank you all so much and thank you all for joining to the audience members um, and you can feel free to subscribe to more national committee events to get um, to hear more from us um, and we will have this event uh, recorded up online for those who were unable to make it live. For more interviews, videos and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.